0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Enjoy the View. I'm Ben Hong, and today on our panel we have Tessa. Hello. And our special guest for this episode is Alexander Lixta. Alex, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, for sure. Thanks for having me.
1: So yeah, I'm a web development consultant at my own cell phone company, development, and I'm also an ActJS core maintainer.
0: Very cool. I got say, I always admire people who are running their own consultancy business. I know that's a whole topic in and of itself. So we'll, we'll touch on that on another time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Future episode coming.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> in terms of people getting to know you who might not have heard you talk at various conferences, let's talk about some of your origin stories. So when did you start getting involved with web development?
1: So first time I really touched web development was when I went to school was like 14-ish, I would say. Uh, and mm-hmm. I started Classic with like PHP and I stick around and... PHP. Yeah. I'm still <laughs> using it today. So <laughs> nice. I stuck around in the whole ecosystem a bit. But yeah, I started with like simple things like Joomla, WordPress and stuff, but also building everything from scratch and then like reinventing the wheel, but worse. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Nice. And so with PHP, most people end up staying within that realm, right? You're already talking about WordPress, Joomla. And so what brought you to using a JavaScript framework? Because that's a pretty big like paradigm shift, I imagine, from a work perspective.
1: Definitely. So, well, it all started when I discovered Laravel, as a PHP framework, and used that for quite a few custom applications because like WordPress wasn't enough and it was just having lots of dirty hacks to make WordPress do what you want. And, ah, uh, no. And then, <laughs> then I, I got to Laravel and of course, after getting into Laravel uh, and programming a few applications here and there, I found out about Vue.js, of course, because also of the friendship of Taylor Otwell of the Laravel community and the Vue community, of course. And so I got to use Vue in Laravel because it was so easy to get started and the, the docs were really amazing and they still are. I mean, <laughs> uh, they're so, so good. Yeah, that's, that's basically how I started using Vue.
2: It's okay. You don't have to say the docs are amazing just because that's here. <laughs>
0: well, so then speaking of Vue, you had mentioned in your introduction earlier that you help to maintain Nuxt. So just as a refresher, can you tell people who might not have heard of Nuxt, what is Nuxt in the, as, as far as the Vue ecosystem is concerned?
1: Yeah, for sure. So to summarize Nuxt.js in a few sentences, it's not that easy. But <laughs> Nuxt is <laughs> it's a meta framework. So it's a framework on top of Vue.js. And I would say the main goal is to make the developer's lives easier and to make it easy to develop powerful web applications. So the idea here is to be versatile, to offer sensible defaults that can be changed, but you can get started very easily and you don't have to configure lots of things and add in some modules or uh, some some packages. You just get get started right away. And if you want to change something, for example, to optimize stuff, you can do it, of course, through a centralized config file. Very nice.
2: I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Debbie, which is, when would it be good to use Nuxt? And when would you recommend that somebody not use Nuxt?
1: So yeah, let's start with the second part of the question, because there's always one use case. I personally say I don't use Nuxt there because it's not really possible. And that's also where I actually come from. So if you have like a a Laravel rendered application, so like a PHP application, Python, whatever, that's already server rendered traditionally. And then you want to use a framework like Vue to enhance pages, like to add some fancy dynamic components and sprinkle a bit of JavaScript in there. That's not a use case for Nuxt.js.
0: But besides that, sky's the limit. Mm, I love that answer. That is great. And so, when it comes to Nuxt, if you had to pick like your favorite feature from Nuxt, what's like the, your like the hot thing that you would write a blog post about today? <laughs>
1: Oh, that's that's tough, actually, because at first there are so many good blog posts already. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I think that the best part is really how all the different parts play together so that you don't have to mm-hmm. configure lots of things. You just install it and you're good to go. If you say like a centralized feature or like one of the main features, I would probably say the file-based routing because yeah. writing router configs is, uh, well, <laughs> it's repetitive and NaXJS all leveraged the file system and you're good to go. So then definitely that one, that's one of my favorites.
0: Yeah, that's definitely saved me a bunch of time, not having to define routes manually.
1: Yeah, same with Vuex modules, if you use VX, right? Mm-hmm.
0: And so recently, one of the big topics being discussed is the Nux content module. Have you had a chance to play around with that?
1: Oh, yeah, good one. Yeah, I use it in a couple of side projects, actually. And it's as it's strictly module, not a feature of the core. I wasn't able to pick that one, but it's amazing. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) Also, due to the live editing inside the browser by just double-clicking something that comes from Nox content, it's almost like pure magic. So kudos to the maintainers, and it's pretty good. I love it.
0: Yeah, hands off to the, uh, the core team for thinking of little developer experience, things like that, because I think I stumbled onto that feature by accident. Like I was like trying to do something and then I was like, grab it. And I was like, oh, wait, I can just edit it in the browser. This is amazing.
1: Yeah. The good thing is it will be synced to your file and you're all good. And it, <laughs> it was also introduced in another version. So it wasn't there from the beginning. And whoever had this thought, it was like, okay, amazing. Really amazing developer experience. Mm-hmm. So no, no self-praise. I'm not involved in module at
0: all. So <laughs> <laughs> just just saying that. <laughs> Well, so for those wondering, though, you said so you mentioned you are a Nuxt maintainer. What part of the Nuxt ecosystem do you help to contribute to?
1: So that's actually difficult because it's not like uh, I, I don't have like a fixed role. Uh, so when mm-hmm. I when
0: I got added to
1: the core team, which was at the Vue.js London two years ago, so 2018, <laughs> time flies, <Very> nice. <laughs> that I started contributing to various modules, also maintaining, still maintaining some of my own modules under the Nuxt community umbrella, and I also contributed lots of things to the core but uh, now that uh, also Nuxt version 2 is on feature freeze, there's not much to contribute uh, besides <laughs> some bug fixes, of course, there. And sure. what I mostly do is trying to help out people. So triaging GitHub issues, for example, helping on the Discord, so answering questions, and also writing blog posts every now and then on my own blog or also on the Nuxt.js blog. And of cool. course, then conferences, talks, Nuxtifying the world, and so on.
0: <laughs> you all have a great outreach team for sure. True. Yeah.
2: (laughs) So besides Nuxt, what are other tools that you like to use when you are building websites and or?
1: So I think my favorite tech stack at the moment for like public facing websites, where I also have lots of time to like implement a cool design and don't have to like quickly putting up a, a prototype of maybe a dashboard with lots of functionality I would say, yeah, Nuxt for sure. And then I would add as a CSS framework, Tailwind CSS for dashboards, for example. I really like to use Beautify because it's so easy to get things up and running quickly with lots of functionalities. But I love to use Tailwind CSS because it's also very flexible and customizable. And yeah, in the backend, I still use PHP, but I'm happy with tinkering around also with like Node and Python. So whatever fits.
0: (laughs) Yeah, speaking of Tailwind, that has been... uh generating quite the buzz in the frontend community quite a bit. That's
1: that's true, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so people are reasonably skeptical, but I guess to start, I mean, Tessa, like, if I were to ask you, what does Tailwind mean to you? How would you describe Tailwind to someone?
2: A world of pain? No, I'm kidding. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's a type of CSS library in the vein of functional CSS, which basically means that you have a bunch of classes that... Each do one thing. So, like, it might set the color to red or the background to blue or something. And so, instead of having assigning classes or assigning styles to groups of elements by using selectors like classes, instead, you are putting these single use classes essentially directly on each element in line to prototype out styles.
0: What do you think, Alex, as someone who uses Tailwind a lot? Yeah. That- Pretty
1: much hits the nail. The good thing here is that compared to frameworks like Bootstrap or also like Beautify or Material Design in general as like a design system, you have the freedom to customize all the things. So for example, if someone build like the Tailwind guys also did, a, say kind of component library with uh, templates, then you can just grab them and basically it's just HTML and CSS and you are free to change things around. Plus also Tailwind gives you, because it's very configurable and flexible, lots of options to enforce like style guidelines and also it provides more or less a mini design system for you so you don't have like 500 shades of green in your uh, in your application and in your css but maybe it's like 10 and you're all good or maybe even just three.
0: Mm. Um, yeah i think the way you phrase that is really good because you know most people are like oh, another like css system like done bootstrap i've done like material like i just want to build my own and I think the way you phrase it regarding a micro design system is a great way of thinking of it because I've had a chance to play with it a bit too. And while there are times where certainly it's faster for me to write my own CSS, I think I agree with Alex in that it really does provide that structure, especially on a, as your team gets bigger for like how utility classes are named and just sort of a, it has an opinion that then you can then customize on top of it. And I think that's probably one of the things that makes it incredibly powerful and why it's so popular.
1: Definitely. Plus the good thing is you don't have to name things, (laughs) that's a really huge pro in my opinion. And even though sometimes uh, people say, uh, okay, the template or the HTML is a bit cluttered because there's so many classes and yeah, you have to get used to that, that's true. You know exactly how each of the DOM elements behaves more or less because you directly see, okay, this component has say a rounded uh, corners or this component Mm -hmm. has a background of red 500 or whatever you configure your colors. Then you know exactly what happens while if you use bem or a similar syntax then you know okay this is a card header and maybe it's card header rounded but you don't know okay it that, does a card header have maybe a shadow defined by default that mm-hmm. that's not what the name can tell you for sure yeah. so i think that's another pro here
0: yeah and i know that recently you had an episode where you were with i think tim bennix right trying to convince him he was definitely a skeptic like- exactly yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> we had a long talk actually unfortunately the recording so we tried out zoom there didn't went very well so we talked i think for more than one hour it was really it was really amazing showed him all the beauty of tailwind and also the plugins like the typography plugin which is amazing standalone because you can just add one class and get like default styles for uh, your whole content be it headings paragraphs lists and so on and it's fully configurable again so that was really cool and I'm, i'm happy that he might consider trying it out and i remember like couple of days later, he wrote me a message, said like, you know what, I'm trying this cool new thing here, and I'm constantly thinking about adding adding classes and adding utility classes. <laughs> so that was the moment I thought, hey, maybe he will try it out. and I'm looking forward to that.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a big win for sure. For those who haven't watched the episode, we'll make sure to include that in the resources so you can check it out. Perfect.
2: So one question I have when it comes to utility for CSS, because my team uses tachyons, which I believe is similar, but I could be wrong.
1: No, that's, that's correct. Yeah.
2: Yeah. When when you need to custom style a component, how do you divide that across your utility CSS library and doing styles the more traditional way, like in the style tag or maybe with a CSS module? Because sometimes when debugging, I find it tricky if I, I'm expecting something to be either in the template or in the styles, but it's kind of divided across both.
1: I see. So what I usually try and to avoid custom CSS as good as possible. So I'm using Tailwind since 0.0 something. So quite early and got released, I think, on Halloween two years ago, roughly. Don't nail me down on that. (laughs) But back then, there were a couple of utilities that weren't added. For example, it wasn't clear if we add like position sticky utility class because of IE support and it's now there or utility classes for transforms, so translates and rotation and so on, or animations or gradients, and they're all there now. So back then, I just tried to add new utility classes, and it's really cool because with Tailwind, you can also say, yeah, this is a utility class, and you add variants. So for example, utility class for hover. So it's the same class, but just with the hover prefix, and it's it's all there. So you can reuse these classes. But if it's really not possible because it's something uh, very fancy, and you, you can't use that, then I try to use it in the style tag because if it's really not, not possible, otherwise I, I go with that way, usually scoped. And then you can use Tailwind's at apply function in the CSS because it goes through post CSS. And then you can, if you want, apply Tailwind classes to, for example, pseudo elements like uh, before or after. And then also most leverage Tailwind CSS power, even if it's a custom class there. But I agree, like looking into the template and then maybe having to look through another source of truth there is a bit tricky. But ideally, this this should happen very often.
0: Yeah, I think you're totally right. Like I think one of the things that finally sold me on Tailwind as I started using it was exactly that apply function. And so for those sort of who've never used it before, envision that when you're writing your CSS, it might be like dot, you know, my custom container. And rather than writing like explicit like border radius 50%, you have utility classes that you apply. So it might be like apply, I don't know what the tailwind border radius is, like that says BR 50 or whatever. And so what you get is like in a way to like standardize, like apply, this is particularly useful for units, like margins and padding. And then it just becomes part of your CSS class for those of us that still want to wrap like custom classes for easy identifiers, but you're still leveraging the design system And not necessarily like what you see some people advertise Tailwind Edge, which is like sort of like a bunch of utility classes directly on the HTML. I don't know, if uh, Alex, what do you think about that? But um, that was one of the things that sold me. It's definitely
1: a huge pro, especially if you're transitioning your code base. But one advice that also Adam Weaven, one of the creators, uh, gave recently is like the yet apply class is a feature that's that's loved that he usually not recommends using. Interesting. That's mostly because if you say if you have a component, you want to make like class say i don't know card again Mm -hmm. then ideally you should make a view component out of uh, that part so you you should use Mm. the framework whatever you're leveraging but of course sometimes it's not possible because some frameworks don't have these component systems or if you work (laughs) like a php application then there might not be any components then you of course have to go back to that apply function but in the end it's however one would like to use it and as long as you're consistent have some rules where to use that apply where not It's all good. And especially for like custom utility uh, classes for like features. As as I mentioned before, when I created some gradient classes, then of course, I used colors from my config and not hard them in, but use another option to pull them directly from the config. So definitely use cases there. Awesome.
0: Well, so we talked a bit about Tailwind, which again, if you all haven't had a chance to try it out, again, watch the episode with Tim and Alex. And as you heard, Alex, there is like a really progressive way of using tailwind. So. Don't feel like you have to buy into it immediately. I think I started using it with Nuxt, and the first thing I got the most value out of was just like the standardized typography ramp, and then the margin ramp. Like I think that's like what I use it for a lot. Spacing is so good; it's just yeah. you know, just being standardized. It's it's got
1: it's it's really gifts sent <laughs> sent from heaven. Mm-hmm. I, I've had it so often rewriting custom CSS, being like, okay, I usually declare variables, but then sometimes you forget it or just like have a quick mm-hmm. hack and so on. One of the things that came out recently uh, and which I mentioned uh, slightly before is like that typography plugin, which is, it's huge. So Mm. what it does is you can add that as a Tailwind CSS plugin and you only have to add one class, which is called prose. And then it will format all content inside that, for example, div. So it's especially cool for like blogs where you have like, okay, I want to have the same style, but I don't want to style all the things. Or if you, for example, have Nux content it use and you pull things in, you can just use the prose class on the wrapper and you're all good.
0: Oh, I need that. <laughs> <And> again the, <laughs> I the sat there thing. defining paragraph spacing and line heights and oh my god. I have the to, two. I
1: really have to update my website too for that. Because again it's fully customizable and it does like code highlighting. It handles so many cases. Also like nested lists and having then uh, bold items in that list and so on. So there's there's a really good example page where I think it was also Adam Listed a bit of text there and all these uh, variants and said like, okay, this is all we've thought about. And again, it's, it's 100% customizable. So if you want to say that's what I usually do for links, if you hover over them, then by default, they're not underlined. If you hover over them, they're also not underlined. And I always want to change that to give a bit more feedback so yes. this is just one line in the config to do that and you're all good wow so again well uh, i
0: know what i'm doing after this <laughs>
1: <laughs> really worth uh, digging into it plus it works well if you also have a custom tailwind config you can configure all these stuff and especially if you have a site that has to be like really really custom that's a perfect fit because again it it's not like every site looks the same with tailwind uh, that's also what mm-hmm. they try to convey in the documentation uh, they give mm-hmm. a couple of examples of buttons and Then the people reading documentation really uh, don't have the feeling, okay, these are the three types of buttons that Tailwinds covers. This is just, these are three examples of what you can do with Tailwind if you want to. But if you want to have something totally different, it's all good. And there are also so many uh, larger websites made with Tailwind. For example, I think the latest Diablo website was also made with Tailwind. that show like also very customized
0: sites can be made with it. Very cool. So when it comes to NUX, I know recently at VueConf US, I had the chance to hear you give a great talk about SEO, and this is something that web developers have talked about this, and this is like ancient technology. But I think we all know that SEO is so critical to like the life and blood of actually having you know basically our website surface when people are searching for things. And so I would love for you to talk a little bit about like what is SEO like in a in a, just a regular view application world.
2: Wait, why don't we start with what is SEO?
0: <laughs> yes, actually, let's go even further back. Yeah. Yes. What is SEO, Alex?
1: Okay, perfect. So, SEO, search engine optimization, it's not rocket science, it's not witchcraft, so no worries. And <laughs> it, it's basically how to optimize your page for the user. And then for the search engines, though it's called search engine optimization, the user is actually the focus.
0: (laughs) Ooh, I like that. And this is
1: also what I I tried to convey at the talk. It's not, first and foremost, it's really about the user because thinking about that from a search engine's perspective, so like Google or Bing, they want to deliver the best fitting result to the user. So if you have an amazing page with great user experience and good content, exactly the content that matches the search intent of the person searching on Google and putting in the, the keywords then why shouldn't they deliver your page as number one? So all you have to do for that is basically somehow conveying or giving giving Google information about, okay, what is your page about? And you do that usually by having good content. But of course, you can optimize that. And now there's also, of course, the part of the users, so the search engine users that click on sites, and they don't know if the content on your site is good, if they have that list of results. So uh, your chance basically to advertise your content and to sell your content more or less to the user and say, okay, this is the best result is through the title of your site. It's also the title in your tab above and the thing called the meta description, which is a 150, 160 or shorter description about exactly that sub page or page. So I would say these are more or less the basics. If you have that for every site, then you're already good to go. But of course, there's lots of like testing involved. What is the perfect title? Should I include my brand name or not? What is the thing that the users are actually looking for? This is also an important part. So understand if the user, if they're searching for some term, do they want to inform themselves? Do they maybe want to buy? Are they maybe looking for a comparison? So aren't they sure what they want to buy? All these things are important for SEO. And it's a quite broad topic, unfortunately. So it's hard to summarize a couple of sentences. (laughs) But yeah, basically it's really about the user first that was called search engine optimization.
0: Yeah, I love that paradigm because we always talk about optimizing for the algorithm, right? Like Google's algorithm, but putting it user-centric is a great way to sort of reframe the importance and humanizing the problem we're actually trying to solve when filling out these fields.
1: It's what they want in the end as well. I mean, uh, Google created this, this huge algorithm that nobody really understands. Nobody knows how it works, mostly to figure out what's the best for the users. And of course, also what's the best for the company. But if they serve users good things, then people will use them.
2: So one thing that I remember stood out to me about your talk at VueConf US was that you mentioned sitemaps, which I feel like is a word that I haven't heard in a long time. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that and how that plays into SEO.
1: For sure. So in my opinion, every site should have a sitemap. And the sitemap is basically an XML file that contains all important URLs for the site that you basically want to have indexed in Google and all other search engines. So usually if your your sites are very well connected, so they're linked well to each other, they're discoverable by Google, you might not need a sitemap. But to ensure that all your pages are indexed, for example, if you have like a large web, shops, a web shop with, say, thousands of products then you get like subcategory sites and uh, detail pages and especially e-commerce sites can blow up really quickly so you want to put in the most important urls and the things that google really should index in that sitemap but then also tell google okay there is my sitemap and you can do that by either submitting your sitemap through the google search console which is a tool for webmasters provided by google where you can like register a page and then just say okay this is my sitemap and the other option is to define the sitemap in your robots.txt, which is another file where you can just say sitemap, colon, and then the link.
2: So do you have any tips then, like if you want or need to build a sitemap, but let's say like multiple pages linked to the same final destination, or you need to dynamically add to the sitemap, like if you have a new site or something with articles and you want all of those to be listed, how would you go about handling those cases?
1: Okay, so the good thing is that most of this can be automated. So going through this, mostly because I use Nuxt as a framework, <laughs> uh, there is a module called Nuxt Communities, I don't know, Nuxt Community Slash Sitemap Module, I'd say. So yeah, we will we'll link that. And mm-hmm. this should pick up your routes automatically. So this is quite cool. If you have a static, statically generated site, then it will just get all the, the URLs during the build time and then we'll link to it. And then you have a static HTML file. And if you use dynamic server set rendering with a Node.js server in between that renders the request on the fly, then it's also no problem and it will be calculated and cached. And if something changes, it will be calculated again. And then you can, for example, provide the URLs through like an API request, which will be then cached and maybe in an
0: hour or so revalidated. Very nice. And that's it for this week's episode. Join us next week to find out why Nuxt is great for SEO, common Nuxt questions, and static site rendering. Welcome back to part 2 of our discussion with Alex as we talk about why Nux is great for SEO, common Nux questions and static site rendering. So for those like who are still like near to the SEO, right? Jumping into like web applications, people are probably wondering like, well, why would I use Nuxt to do SEO? Like can't I just use Vue? Like what are the benefits of using Nux over Vue?
1: Very good point here. Yeah. So when you have a vanilla view application, then of course it's a single page application. And for single page applications, you get the JavaScript, then it will be parsed and the JavaScript will generate the HTML. So far so good. But there are a couple of problems here. So the first one is not strictly SEO related, but it's still an issue. So if you, for example, share a sub page through Discord or Twitter or WhatsApp or whatever, then you usually want to have like the correct title and also description, maybe a cool image having listed there. So giving some mm. preview images. And with an SPA, that's not really possible because the tags, so-called OG tags, open graph tags, have to be embedded in the HTML because there's no like real crawler running over that, uh, understanding JavaScript and parsing the site. It's more like, okay, the HTML hat will be checked and there's no tag, so or maybe just the default title and that's it. So that's the first one. But... The most important part here is that Google can understand JavaScript. So it can index your single page application. That's really possible. That has been, so five years ago, maybe earlier, <laughs> this wasn't possible. So most, most major search engines can understand JavaScript. But the problem here is, well, even if they understand JavaScript and can index your page, it doesn't mean that Google will say, wow, that's a really, really fast page or really good one. Because again, the JavaScript has to be there first. It has to be fully downloaded, or at least the initial one, and then the HTML will be generated. So the time to first paint, or for Core Web Vitals, the the largest content full paint, will be quite slow. Because again, the JavaScript has to be downloaded first and parsed, and then the HTML will be generated. While if you use Nux.js with server-side rendering, no matter if you use static site generation or dynamic server-side rendering, then The largest content before paint will be quite quick because either you have a static HTML file with the content in there already or the Node.js server returning the HTML and then your content is there.
0: That's a great explanation.
1: I hope there weren't too many unknown terms like uh, dynamic service (laughs) and rendering. (laughs) Should I explain that one maybe?
0: To be honest, I would say that's a good one to cover.
1: Okay, perfect. So starting with Nuxt again here. <laughs> there, there, <laughs> so surprise. There, there are lots of frameworks that can do server side rendering. So for example, ViewPress also does server side rendering, but only at build time. And that's also what we know as like Jamstack or static site generation. Because when you build your site, there will be a server generating the pages, right? So technically seen, I would say that's a subcategory of server side rendering, though the server is not always running. And to make the difference between server-set rendering at build time and server side rendering on the fly or how I call it, dynamic server side rendering. That's where you have a Node.js server running all the time. And the initial request, and that's important here, the initial request will go to that server and the server will fetch, for example, data from an API and then render your view application, the current route that should be loaded for that user as HTML and deliver it to the user together with the, the JavaScript needed to build your view application. So the user will get the HTML with all the content already and can scroll and can look at it. And uh, while that happens, your Vue application will be downloaded, so JavaScript will be downloaded and parsed. And Vue will do a so-called hydration. So it will take the static HTML that comes from the server and transform it to uh, Vue's own DOM representation, to to your own VDOM representation, to make it reactive again. And then the page is fully interactive.
0: Fascinating. And so you know, for those listening, like, so why would someone want if you know what your site is in advance, then why would someone need dynamic server-side rendering? Okay,
1: so again, coming here with an e-commerce shop where you say like, okay, I want to have the stock count or all information in yeah. real time. So that's a good use case. Or oh. having some some kind of analysis site where I want to get results immediately. Uh, then, mm. Because if you build your site statically, uh, the build time takes a bit. So of course, mm-hmm. even if you don't have code changes, generating a couple of thousand sites may take a bit more than 10 seconds. So if you need like near real-time data, and of course, if they are relevant for SEO or for the user, so if the user can't wait, say five minutes for the result, then it would make sense to use dynamic server-side rendering, for example.
0: Great example. Yeah, I think the real-time is the key piece to unlock there, right? Because otherwise you're like, well, if you know, even in e-commerce, you know all your products, why would you need that? But to your point, if you want to be in real-time. Exactly.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can, still, you can still fetch, for example, the stock count on the client side. So that's all good, unless you need it for, for SEO purposes to maybe embed structured data or something. But in general, there are lots of options. If you have a use case, you can always evaluate how much of the data is needed in real-time, how much is needed for SEO. And by that, choose dynamic server-side rendering or not. And the good thing is, again, coming to Nuxt here, if you use Nuxt, then a change in that is <laughs> very, very simple. So if you use server-side rendering, or if you even don't use server-side rendering at all and build a good old single-page application with Nuxt, which you can do, switching to SSR isn't difficult at all. It's actually just one uh, config step, and that's it.
0: Gotta love the DX on Nuxt. We try our best. <laughs> <laughs>
1: One of the newest things in there is now when you create Nuxtap to uh, scaffold your application, we've added some links to all the top-level keys where you get information also to the modules that link to documentation, which is uh, go.nuxt.js.dev, I think. Then you have go.nuxt.js.dev slash content, for example, and you're redirected to the content module docs, so you always know where to go.
2: So I'd like to switch topics a little bit and ask about your talks, because it seems like you give a lot of talks and go on podcasts and things. So I'm curious how you come up with your subject and what you think about when you're communicating your messages.
1: Yeah, so I indeed try to to give a a few talks every now and then. And it's mostly because it's a bit like how I come up with blog posts. I'm very active in Discord and GitHub. And if I see the same question coming again and again and again, then it's usually either time to edit documentation. But if it's a very like, in-depth and complex topic, for example, how to fix hydration errors in Vue, then I'd rather write a blog post because it won't fit uh, on documentation page and uh, it's a more narrow case. But yeah, for talks, it's almost the same. So if I would say like many people are interested in NUX, then I would give like a beginner's uh, talk about NUX, what it is, what you can do with it and what you can't. And with Nuxt and SEO, it actually came up because I'm really focused on SEO and all my projects because I mostly have like public-facing sites and also client projects every now and then are public-facing. So uh, that's a common question. And SEO is, in general, a topic for developers that's not often touched. And when I looked through most like meetups and also conference lineup, then there almost never was an SEO talk. So I thought, well, uh, why not giving that try and see how it goes? And actually last year in October, there was a bar camp in Berlin where I spontaneously decided, okay, look, I haven't prepared anything, but I just want to tell you a few things about SEO and people really liked it. So I thought let's make it a real talk.
0: (laughs) Well, we are all very grateful that you did. (laughs) Thank you.
2: So are there any questions that you see coming up time and time again that you want people like perhaps our listeners to just know, like, this is a common thing that I see people miss. And here's how to do it.
1: So, yeah, one common question is almost every time about authentication, <laughs> and it's unfortunately again it's a very complex topic, mostly because the setup varies a lot. So it can be OAuth, two, It can be JWT. It could be some uh, SSO, SAML. There are lots of variables, lots of unknowns here, and this is again on the Discord and also sometimes on Reddit, where I'm also on every now and then. Uh, people are asking often, but Answering these questions is really complex if you don't know about the whole scenario. And also, the Nuxt authentication module is there, Mm -hmm. but again, we can't cover all possible use cases. Plus, we are all no authentication experts, and neither the developers using Nuxt are mostly. So, right. (laughs) Don't want to assume that you're not, but that's a point here. So if you, for example, don't understand how JWT workflow works, then it's tough to implement it. Mm -hmm. So this is a common question, but unfortunately, there's no easy answer to that. Yeah. But I have one more. I have one more common question, which is about Nux in Vue 3. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very common. And the answer is, it will be ready when it will be ready. <laughs> so, can't, yeah,
0: I'm familiar with that answer.
1: <laughs> can't give an ETA. But the Vue Global talks are online. Sebastian and Puja talked a lot about nux 3, things coming up, the internals there and changing things and ideas. A good thing is, a few things are already known, like there will be a rewrite and TypeScript. So you don't have to, of course, you don't have to use TypeScript if you use Nuxt, Yay. but this will be really helpful, especially like for module authors and for people mm-hmm. who like auto-completion. <laughs> so this is one point. And of course, while you're uh, on nux 2, you can use JS Composition API package, which gives lots of composable functions for existing things like fetch, static, async data, and so on. So I'm using that in a couple of projects and it's amazing how well it works. So again, shout out to Daniel, who is mostly maintaining this here. Because again, it's not my work, not at all. I'm also quote unquote, just a user, a happy colleague. And coming to that, maybe the last question here that I get quite often, should we wait for Next 3 or should we use Nux2? 2? It is a similar answer for, should we wait for Vue 3 or use Vue 2 back then when Vue 3 <laughs> wasn't released? Uh, I would say use whatever you want right now, which is Next 2, <laughs> and go for it and then do the migration. Mostly because I always have that philosophy. If you want to get things done, then just go ahead and start and switching is always possible later, but you would lose lots of time that's valuable for like product feedback or seeing if maybe the whole approach doesn't work at all. You have to pivot in another direction. Mm-hmm. So to me personally, it's worth more just giving it to go and building something and then maybe switching later because also migration will be as well, as less painful as possible. <laughs> so um, yeah, give it a go. If you like Composition API like I do, use the Composition API plugin and you're good to go. Great, great advice.
2: Yeah, speaking of Vue 3 and Nuxt 3, I'm curious also if you could share any common gotchas that you see when people are switching to Nuxt for the first time.
1: Good point. So one of the most common gotchas is really server-side rendering because it's really cool and it's amazing, but it comes with lots of complexity and people always underestimate that. And again, this was also one of my common gotchas at first. They don't understand how it works. So I usually try to explain that every time I give like a Nuxt workshop for beginners or Nuxt talk. The important part is really, it's only about the initial request. This is the most important thing because I messed it up at the beginning first too. <laughs> I thought, okay, maybe why is it, maybe it's Nux calling that Node.js server, also client side navigation, but no, not at all. It's only the first request. So when you hard reload the page or when you click on the page link from an external page, this is server-side rendered and all the other things happening similar way, like a plain old SPA. So this is one of the common gotchas.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. I remember the the first and only time I used Nuxt, I was trying to build a portfolio site and none of my images were dynamically loading. And I was like, oh, I thought it was the same as Vue. So I was just wondering if there are others like me out there. I actually
1: made a blog post about that because this is, again, a common question people doing like, okay, how can I dynamically load my images, but even also in plain view? So there's also why, why I said, okay, let's take a look under the hood. Why does it work? When I just have like non-dynamic string, why can it load my, my image? But if I would say, okay, let's say add slash asset slash uh, then variable image name dot png, why doesn't that work? So interesting topic, actually. I'm also not like a webpack expert, but at this time I, I dug really deep into it. And I thought, okay, if you mm-hmm. want to have a quick solution, click here. If, if you want to get all the integrated details, <laughs> then read that post. That's also a very often asked question
2: nice yeah I was like why doesn't it work
1: <laughs> and I think one more thing is that so if you're a Vue library maintainer or a Vue plugin maintainer or however I want to call it say a maintainer in the Vue.js ecosystem then sometimes uh, SSR is not your first or your second or your third fourth so I've seen lots of libraries that don't have SSR in mind and that's completely okay because you can still use them on the client side only, but of course you need to know how and also you need to uh, evaluate if there are other options and if it's important for SSR or not. So uh, this is also a thing, how to use components that are not ready for server-side rendering because the common error like window is not defined because on the server-side you don't have window or document available because these are all browser-specific APIs. So I think that's also one of, one of the common gotchas here.
2: Speaking of libraries, I'm curious because I don't know if it's in Vue 3, but I remember in Vue 2, you used to be able to pick like a render target of if you wanted to make your own package. And I'm curious if with Nuxt as well, that is like one of the recommended or potential use cases is to use Nuxt to build a library to be used by other developers.
1: So Nuxt doesn't have that like uh, the Vue CI has that with uh, an option to export and to set the render target. But what Nuxt has now as an option is if you write a Nuxt.js module that adds components, you can add them to make them automatically detectable and addable. That's a cool new feature that came in the, I think the last or the one before or so minor version where you don't have to use imports anymore for your components. Nuxt will simply automatically import them and even lazily if you want to. So you don't have to declare them in your script part. What you can do is uh, just write the name in the template and you're all good. Nice. But yeah, coming back to your original question, I would say the talk from Torsten Lundborg, which was, I think, uh, last year's conference on VGS Amsterdam about uh, correctly uh, exporting and bundling uh, VGS libraries is pretty good there because it's totally fine if you have your VGS library and then export it for C L I It's all good. And I always suggest people who import uh, other view libraries in Nuxt to import from source if possible. And then there is one common gotcha. So before I forget to mention that, all things in Node modules are by default not transpiled. So sometimes you have to add that specific library you're importing from source to be transpiled. Otherwise, it won't work. So yeah, not, not exporting the fully minified build, for example, but use the source files themselves to import, for example, view components to make the whole library tree shakable. So not saying import from the module slash dist or something from Node modules, but from the real view files. I see. But yeah, that's mostly for like optimizing things and reducing bundle size and performance.
2: Nice. Sounds good.
0: Well, as we start to wrap up, Alex, so if people have questions or want to hire you, where can people find you on the internet?
1: So yeah, first of all, for questions, no matter what, if it's business inquiry, or just asking what's the new coolest hot take on AXJS, you can <laughs> reach out on, on Twitter, of course, at the Alex Lichter. It will be in the show notes, so no worries. I also have blog, blog.lichter.io. Yeah, again, my name is terrible to pronounce for all people in <laughs> German. Sorry for that. <laughs> or x y z. That's a better URL here. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's less known. Well, there we go. So you can always shoot an email at blog at io if you prefer email. So you're all good. And besides that, yeah, I think these are best ways to reach out.
0: uh Yeah. Sounds good. Perfect. Well, I think with that, it's time for us to move on to this week's picks. Tessa, would you like to go first?
2: Yes, I have one pick for this week. It's the second season in Netflix's haunting anthology, The Haunting of Bly Manor. And it's based on several of Henry James's books, mainly The Taming of the Screw, but also some other books. It's not as scary as the first one for people who are not good at horror like me most of the scares are like in the first episode i think to kind of set the tone but i really like this series because i feel like both seasons have very lush set design and just really nice camera angles and so aesthetically it's very pleasing to watch
0: great sounds cool alex what do you have for us this week in terms of picks
1: so i have three (laughs) Great. Number. <laughs> so the first one is a bit more technical and from a maintainer's perspective, and uh, probably, you know, conventional commits, having like chore or fix or feed in front of your commit to declare what the content of the commit is, mm-hmm. the intention. And Paul Slaughter from uh, GitLab created something similar called conventional comments. So for reviewing code, so pull requests, code reviews, and so on, and to make clear your intention, also the severity, for example, of a comment, You you could do the same here. So, for example, you could say suggestion, then colon, this is not worded correctly. And then the person who wrote the code will exactly know, okay, this is just a suggestion. This is not blocking at all. This is just an idea. Or you could also say something like nitpick or uh, blocking or issue to... Yeah, make your intention clear, because again, if we talk, it's easy uh, to get the tone and to understand uh, what we refer to. Well, not always, but most of the time. (laughs) But when we write, all these things get lost and the context uh, is sometimes missing. So to make intention clear, conventional comments might be uh, a good option here.
2: Yeah, that sounds fantastic. I feel like that would have saved me so much time on my last team.
0: Oh, I love this. Great pick. (laughs)
1: <laughs> amazing so you have to introduce that to your teams too right <laughs>
0: uh, i already dropped it in slack so way ahead oh, of you oh <laughs> perfect
1: <laughs> nice okay the second one is something physical here it's the tonor t20 microphone arm stand because when corona started i got a new side project which is by like home studio more or less <laughs> so i got my old road nt1a out of the basement and i was missing a real microphone arm so I got that one, which is not comparable. So it's very cheap, but it's not comparable to all the other cheap microphone arms there. It's not as good as the uh, Rode PSA One, which is master class, but it's really solid. And I think it was like twenty bucks or something. And it's it's pretty it's pretty good. It's spring loaded and it's stable and it's 360 degrees uh, turnable. So definitely good recommendation from my side here. Great. Okay. And the last one is the side website carbon, which is also due to uh, current situation. Climate change <laughs> is uh, just a rough guidance on how the website actually impacts the planet. So you could enter your website there and it will tell you how much greenhouse gases it will emit per 10,000 views, for example, and how it would compensate it. And it will also tell you if it's, for example, cleaner than X percent of the websites tested. So especially now when there's lots of JavaScript load, and yes, I know I'm saying that in the Vue.js podcast here, not saying that if you just JavaScript load. Oh my God, that's not true at all. <laughs> but having like lots of large megabyte, large bundle, that might be a good idea to just check your site and see if you maybe also have a chance to, to improve your site there.
0: Perfect. Well, gosh, I think I'm going to end up like, buying or <laughs> recommending all these to people. Definitely love the new upgrade for the Toner microphone arm stand and the website cover. Ah, oh, These are great picks. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I guess at least me for the picks. And so I have just one pick for you all. Um, for those who have been listening, uh, you might know that I'm a bit of a productivity nerd and have been reading things like how to take smart notes. And so basically... Well, this
2: is a surprise to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so my pick of the week is a tool called Rome Research. And basically, it's a new way of thinking about taking notes from a way of creating relationships between different nodes as you're writing. And so for those interested in sort of this note-taking, uh, second brain digital gardening, it's absolutely worth the time to look into. And I'm always happy to chat that kind of stuff. So feel free to contact me if you have any questions about it. And with that, that is all for this week's episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And until next time, enjoy the view.